you're listening to the Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones. Normally I host this program, but today I've got Karen Revoir, who's going to share this this uh, hosting role with me. I look forward to that. She's going to take over. And we're going to be talking to Richard Barrett, who's been on my other podcast, but today we're going to be talking about something particular. In 2011, Richard Barrett and I chatted about the the new paradigm for leadership and uh, what exactly it takes to function quite well as a leader in today's world. Recently, Richard has published The Psychology of Well-Being. So we think we, it's time to talk about that. When I say we, I'm referring to um, Karen Revoir, who's joining me today. Karen is part of the humanizing HR work in the in the area of, uh, of leadership, product, and network design. So, so she's very much around helping leaders attract the best talent, improving trust, and sustaining organizational health. She's also been actively involved in leading digital change. Karen, can I just turn it over to you, and I'll jump in whenever it seems like a good time. Yeah, that's great, Donna. Thanks very much. And I am very, very happy to finally be meeting uh, Richard. I've heard so much about his work and saw him in front of a Minds at Work session a couple of, um, well, probably about a year ago. So, And there's been min- many triggers, and Donna and I have spoken about this, uh, for us to want to reach out to to Richard, and, and not least the, the, the latest sort of Uber saga has been a real trigger, Richard, for us to want to reach out to you and hear more about both your book and about perhaps some of your thinking. Good. Well, fire away. I personally don't feel it's that hard to, to, to solve some of the challenges that, that Uber seem to be having. Um, and particularly, uh, you know, values can help and, and, and how we translate value-driven leadership into into behaviours. What, what's your thinking about the role values could play or any of your work actually could play in, in, in helping get Uber on their journey? Well, you know, the timing of this interview is almost perfect in a way because I just released a second edition of the Values Driven Organization. And the byline on this new book is Cultural Health and Employee Wellbeing as a Pathway to Sustainable Performance. And so... <laughs> The the key, I think, for a leader is to be the guardian, the guardian of the values of the organization, to li- not only just live them, but to be a role model for integrity in terms of understanding people's needs and responding to those needs in a way that employees can more than admire but in a way that where employees feel inspired and and yeah. that uh, is that is a tall order for a leader because uh, most of us still have remnants of our ego <laughs> self-esteem wanting to be wanting to be out there um, you know so it's a question of overcoming that and you know, that's the key, overcoming your fears so that you can be a leader with integrity. Yes, and and um, and perhaps sticking to those those values and taking them deeper. So rather than doing that, we seem to be jumping from one shiny toy to the next and one buzzword to the next. Did you know that emotions were back in fashion? Empathy seems to be back in fashion. Compassion seems to be a a buzzword that's going around. What what do you think to these buzzwords and this obsession with the latest shiny toy? Well, I um, a lot to say about that. <laughs> you know, often the latest obsession is simply a 
an effort to try and do something or, or get something that is missing uh, without this deeper understanding of the verticality of life. What do I mean by the verticality of life? I mean that we all go through different stages of psychological development. We're all on the same journey. And and that uh, and that journey is the the journey that I talk about in a new psychology of human well-being. And and so you know when you say emotions are back in fashion, exactly. That's <laughs> one of the things that I actually highlighted in that book. Is you know we all have emotions, and you know the question is what is an emotion? And for me, an emotion is either. Uh, an unmet need or a need which has been met which you didn't expect to be met so that would be happiness uh, we get happy when we get a need met that we didn't expect to be met and then we get anger when our needs are not met and if, our, if we think our needs are not going to be met in the future then we feel anxiety so there are there are emotions of the ego but i also believe there are emotions of the soul the soul gets very sad when its desires are not fulfilled you know i make a difference between ego needs and soul desires soul has mm. desires whereas ego has needs needs the ego has to have its needs met or it gets into these emotions the emotion of anger and anxiety and fear Whereas the soul has these desires to self-express, connect, and contribute to the world. And if the soul is unable to meet its desires, it begin, you begin to feel sadness. That sadness can then move into other deeper dysfunctions, mental dysfunctions. As you know, Karen, we, we, we find that in the workplace quite a lot. Yes, and, 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 and I think we're finding it more and more, which is, which is quite sad. So it's good, actually, to see emotions coming back into fashion. And, and hopefully we can, we can stick with that a bit longer. And that will help, as you described earlier, leaders respond and, and sense what is, what is really going on in the workforce. And the more that they can sense and, and respond to that, I think better, better everybody will, will be. What, what do you think is holding back? some of the businesses from using values uh, to make to make better decisions because it, it's not only about leaders and how they sense and respond it's also about how they actually make decisions to move the organization forward why aren't they using values more to to, to do to do just that well i think two reasons the first reason is they don't understand what values are and the mm -hmm. second reason is they get them confused with beliefs so let's take the first reason. Whatever you need is what you value. So your values are a reflection of your needs. As you know, we do cultural values assessments. So we actually look at what values are showing up in an organization and what values are desired in an organization yeah. by the employees. Now, those desired values are a reflection of the needs of the employees at the stage of psychological development they're at and are a reflection of what is missing for them. So in a sense, when you're looking at desired cultural values as opposed to current cultural values, you're always looking at what is necessary for the employees to feel that their needs are being met. And that is actually fundamental 
to building uh, not just a high-performance organization, but an organization where you have a great sense of cultural health and employee well-being. Robert Keegan brought out a book recently about a deliberately developmental organization, and I'm totally aligned with that because hmm. everybody, everybody on the planet is going through different stages of development. I call them seven stages of psychological development. And the yep. last four stages go from being uh, around 24 years old all the way up to, you, you know, your retirement age. Hmm. And, uh, and, and, and so as employees go through those stages, their needs met. So their values change. What is important to them changes as they move through those stages and if you don't understand that then you're operating basically in some sort of flat land whereas actually we're all living in vertical land yes yes no that's that's great and i think that's real sort of practical advice for people who are very much getting confused so that assessment up up front is is essential because that can that can unite people it can unite countries um but you have to go through that cultural and values assessment so that's that that's great to have that pragmatism so what about the beliefs bit that you were okay we so using um, values yeah <laughs> so so here's the interesting thing when we are born or actually from three months of gestation for the first three months, we don't have a brain. And then the reptilian mind brain forms. And we have that brain from three months of gestation through to being born through to about two years. That is the dominant mind brain, the reptilian mind brain. It's focused on one mm -hmm. thing alone, that's survival. And yeah. it forms beliefs based on its experiences. Now, the same thing happens with the limbic mind brain, which then comes, becomes dominant from two to about seven or eight. It forms beliefs based on your experiences about how it can feel protected and safe and loved. Mm -hmm. And then the neocortex becomes dominant um, and is still growing and developing as the other two brains were during that period. Um, it still grows and develops up to the age of about 24. So, you know, a teenager, for example, you know, doesn't have a fully functioning brain. And that's why teenagers do stupid things. That's their excuse. I wonder what the rest of us can use. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, so, so, so during those first 24 years, your mind brain is growing and developing and you're learning how to get your needs met, survival, safety and security needs met in the framework of your existence. And the way we learn is by forming beliefs. Okay, so by the time you've got to 24 years of age, you've got a whole set of beliefs based on your experiences. You've got a whole set of beliefs about what your parents told you. And you've got a mm -hmm. whole set of beliefs about what your community, what you need to do in order to feel secure in your community. At that point, if you are not able to separate from, your, from these beliefs, to find out who you really are, what mm -hmm. you really believe, and what you value because whatever you need is what you value. We now move into the values stage of growing and developing. From 24 onwards, we begin to have a deeper understanding of values and what values are. Now, if you are someone like Donald Trump, who had a really difficult childhood, I mean, a lot of people have difficult childhood, they grow up with beliefs about not being able, not having enough, not being loved enough, and not having being enough. Yeah. Those beliefs are so ingrained 
that they can't move into this individuating stage of development where they can find out truly who they are and start to use values for decision making rather than beliefs for decision making. Yeah. Oh, great. That, I mean, that, that, that really helps. Um, and, I, and I suppose our understanding of the brain is evolving daily, but at, le- at least those, those, those three stages are, 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 are very clear and, again, uh, remove some of the confusion we make and, and the wrong language we, we use. How, how do you think tech's impa- impacting it? Because it feels very much as if, especially perhaps our sort of under 24s, uh, and I have three of them, the, the doing is taking over the being as well with the, the amount of social media and, and, and gadgets and devices. So is that impacting their ability to be and their ability to understand uh, what they what they really value? Um, I don't think so, because these three stages of development, the needs are very, very deeply embedded. So that, rep, that reptilian mind brain is totally focused on on survival of the body it's, mm-hmm. it it knows what it needs in order to survive that child two to eight years old knows that it's totally focused on safety and getting feeling protected and loved and now the teenager the teenager the child is wants to feel protected and loved in its family environment because that's its main environment but then from age eight onwards the child starts to go out into the world, the teenager is out into the world, and it wants to feel secure in that world. And in order to feel secure, it has to feel seen and recognized. And the key for young people is to be seen and recognized. And that's why they spend a lot of time grooming. They They even think about having little tattoos or wearing some sort of pierced uh, ring, uh, some piercing that were with a ring, because they want to stand out. They want to stand out and be recognized, but they also want to be part of a group. And so they think that being able to be uh, stand out within a group, uh, they get admired within that group and they get recognition. That's what teenagers are all about, right up yeah. to the uh, 20-something 24 or 25 and maybe even some people never get out of that I mean uh, they they stay that way for the rest of their lives uh, because they never actually got recognized by their parents they were not seen by their parents they never really were accepted in the group and so they have this limiting belief I'm not good enough which stays with them and you can tell these people because I spot them immediately when I'm walking around the town because they've got some outlandish something outlandish about them which says look at me mm. see me Mm-mm. you know yeah and yeah yeah uh, and maybe there's and, some of them walking around the workplace as well so i mean this is as relevant for our for our children as it is for the workplace especially with with tech and the the, the speed in which some of our young founders are are growing their businesses and perhaps not growing at the same speed and developing at the same speed as they as they need to well, there is one, something really interesting, I think, about um, this uh, this so-called this new generation called millennials. Actually, I believe millennial is one of the mis- most misunderstood and misused mm. words on the planet because, yes. for me, uh, and the millennial is not somebody born in a particular period. It's somebody born in that period who was raised by self-actualized parents who. Mm allowed that child to self-express 
encourage them to connect and encourage them to contribute. These kids, when they get to their early 20s, are like a leap ahead of everybody who learned limiting beliefs about uh, I don't have enough, um, I'm not loved enough, and I'm not good enough. These are children who are raised in by parents who to some extent are dysfunctional, which is the majority of the population. In fact, we are, every family is dysfunctional. I'm sorry to tell you this, Karen, but every family is dysfunctional <laughs> to a certain extent. I fully accept that. I understand my <laughs> how dysfunctional we are. <laughs> so, the, so these millennials have this, like, they've got this brilliant start in life because they don't have so many of these fears to overcome when they get to the individuating stage between 24 and 39. And in fact, they might even accelerate to a certain extent these stages of development. Not too yeah. much, but a little bit. Yeah, no, well, it's great. And it's great to hear some positives around the, the, the generation. I, I don't think we can put labels on people in any way, but um, I think, as you say, that one is a big misowner. Miss Just to, um, I, I don't think we can finish on, uh, on, on values, but value-driven leadership for me is a great way of simplifying expectations and giving people role models it also forces businesses to think about emotional and mental well-being um, and I haven't read your book and will rush to, to read it and encourage everybody who's listening to do the same but can you tell us about how you've connected those two themes around values and emotional and mental well-being which which is a natural connection I know for you but if, if you could help people who are listening um, make that same yeah. connection that'd be great. I'll go I'll go even further um, <laughs> so I wrote A New Psychology of Human Well-Being, the ego-soul dynamics, uh, the influence of ego-soul dynamics on mental and physical health, because I wanted, first of all, to bring the soul back into psychology. The soul was absolutely in psychology at the time of Jung, Carl Jung, uh, and Asagioli too. I'm going back to the 1950s and 60s. And Maslow, even to a certain extent, he never called it yeah. the soul, but he had that sort of high vision. But from that moment on, the old psychological profession became academic, and in academia, there is no God, there is no soul, and it all became cognitive, and we lost the soul out of psychology. I wrote this book to get the soul back into psychology, point one. Now, in this book, what I try to do is I link science with the spirituality with psychology, because, you know, you can't have, well, you can have three different uh, ways of explaining the world, but actually there's only really one. And so where does science, uh, psychology and spirituality meet? They meet in energy. They meet in the energy mm -hmm. field. And so what this book does, it links the seven stages of psychological development to the human energy system, the chakra system. And yep. it links the chakra system, uh, it links failing failure to master a stage of development to the chakra system, to physical ill health. So, for example, women, when they get to the self-actualizing stage, which is um, in their 40s, in our 40s, they have great difficulty with the self-actualizing stage because, A, they've either got a, a husband who needs some taking care of, and practically every man needs some taking care of because we're hopeless, basically. Um, <laughs> Secondly, they've got children that need taking care of. And thirdly, they may have aged parents who need taking care of. Mm -hmm. And so they 
put their self-expression because the 40s is the time for first stage of soul activation self-expression they put that on hold now this is the this is the uh, fifth chakra around the throat and the upper chest and this is why when you look at the data you'll see the increase in in breast cancer really takes off from the mid 40s mm. on and uh, mm. the thyroid problems also so now men it's the next stage that really affects men because the next stage, the first stage of soul activation, self-actualization is self-expression. The next stage is connection because once you've found your, what you love to do, you want to make a difference. And to make a difference, you've got to connect. And so now in the 50s, you want to connect. That's where women have a big advantage. Now men, because in the second stage of development, the conforming stage, the they didn't learn that they were told not to show emotions. They were told uh, to hide their feelings. When they get to the 50s, they're totally handicapped in connecting in order to make a difference in the world. And so mm. they then develop prostate cancer. And that is linked to that stage of development. And then we get to the, 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 the last stage, which is the serving stage on the 60s and beyond, which is about, which links through to the self-esteem stage because if you didn't get your recognized and, and your self-esteem when you get to the 60s you will find it difficult you won't have the confidence to go out into the world and make a contribution and what happens then is you get the early onset of alzheimer's and all of those other brain diseases because you're not able to go out into the world and and, and do what your soul came to do because you don't have a soul you are a soul. That's who you are. And your main purpose in life is to self-express, connect, and contribute. And if we could change our education system so that we taught kids that, that'd be fantastic. If we had workplaces that encouraged self-expression, connection, contribution, then we'd have fantastic workplaces. I think, I think people do fundamentally want to contribute, but leaders do have to help them understand where we're going and why. So they have a huge role to play in terms of navigation. But, um, well, I mean, I mean, this is a perfect example of where, you know, some deep thinking might sound complex initially, but it actually helps you understand its framework to understand so many things. So thank you so much, Richard, for, for sharing that. I think I'll go back to my husband and explain that um, he doesn't need to worry too much about prostate cancer because he's definitely been able to express himself. And his second stage of, of showing emotion has been happening ever since we married to 25 years ago. So it sounds as if the, the risks are pretty low. Um, yeah. So that's good news. So thank you for that. We have a great window of opportunity to train machines um, and at the same time augment human potential so the machines don't go off on their own. Um, how would conscious leaders go about that? So over to you, Donna and, and Richard. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to learn from you and, and see what a huge difference the understanding of, of, of values and beliefs can, can really make both in our lives and, and in workplaces. Thank you, Karen. Gosh. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about the answers that Richard's given in the conversation you two have had is that you've, ta you, you've, you've dug into the nuances of things, which right now is critically important because people with, with, with so much information being processed, it's almost like there's a lump of experience that people are Im immersed in. And unless you become more conscious, unless you become more aware of your surroundings contextually and emotionally inside, you know, what are the forces going on inside yourself? You, you, can't, you can't tell one, one driving force from another and therefore people become overwhelmed quite quickly.
and and give in physically as as Richard you did a nice uh, job of sort of direct drawing the relationship between what we're experiencing and the impact it has physically so really appreciate the discernment between soul desires and ego needs and similarly between values and beliefs because from a decision making point of view values is the way you design the future and beliefs is the way you keep recycling the past so i did include richard in uh, in, in decision making for dummies and a link to a great little video you did on that in i think it's on the on the uh, barrett value center site richard thank you mm. yeah and 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 i i'd add to that um donor is that there may, may be an app for, for, for plenty of things and we should definitely embrace technology, but maybe we should keep the apps just to save a bit of time and spend more time on on everything that, that Richard's just talked about. And, and, and again, the same goes for workplaces. An app does not excuse a, a lack of depth and, and, and thinking about emotions, values and, and, and beliefs. On the contrary, I think we owe it to ourselves even more. And, and particularly to the workplace to understand ourselves to be able to deal with what's what's coming in the next the next few years so thanks for the opportunity to talk to Richard yeah so one thing I wanted to add to the conversation around individuation in in the teenage years is that I have discovered through the role I play as a as, I'm not sure maybe maybe I'll, I'll exaggerate and say the word mentor to to a lot of youth who are disenfranchised for one reason or another, they've been through some horrific experiences or they've, and they've become separate from their identity. They don't know who they are. Uh, all of those kinds of things. It, it, the, the most fundamental and the simplest way uh, of helping or, or being with someone like in, in, at any time, it doesn't matter whether it's personally or corporately, is, is to deep listen. And, and that deep listening without any judgment is is really transformational it allows people to know that they are accepted for who they are unconditionally and and i know that when i started this the first podcast i did in 2008 with uh, i interviewed nick zanuck and uh, nick was part of ford and, and he he was talking telling a story about corporately when the executives would go down and experience sit down and, and listen to what people had to say deeply and, and genuinely and 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 not second guess them and not have their mental constructs around what what they were going to say next or how to respond and and all of that just listen to them performance on the whole went up so the the, the way in which we can become more human is pretty simple i will circle back and answer your question karen but i wanted to include that because i think it's uh it's such a simple and yet powerful transformational skill and you know as, as as the speed of change continues to accelerate it, that that's one thing we have to keep and actually i've seen that as my role in hr is to help leaders hear and see what's really going on in an ideal world they need to be going out and and, and connecting permanently but that hasn't always happened even even in the past but that direct connection yeah i, f- I fully agree it's, it's very very powerful and and again maybe technology can help gather even more voice, um, and I'm now talking about real voice because again, you don't just want snippets or um, retranscriptions. You actually want the voice of of what people are really, really saying. So yeah, great leaders. I think they go and they they embrace that and they go out and, and look for it, and that's their sort of nourishment going going forward. But um, I think with less and less HR or whatever HR revolutionaries in the workplace, my my fear is that we're going to miss we're going to miss those opportunities. Yeah. 
Well, let's go back now to the question you asked. Richard, any thoughts you have? Just jump in and... You know, um, I, 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 I listen so well that um, I, when you uh, ask a question five minutes ago, I've completely forgotten it by the time, uh, you know, five minutes ago, because I'm always <laughs> listening to the present moment. So could we just get back to the question again? Because I don't want to show myself yeah. up and be ignorant. <laughs> so shall I try it again? So it was, um, if we have, a, we, we have a window of opportunity to train machines, so that's the language we're using currently in AI and machine learning. So we have an opportunity to train machines and at the same time, I think, augment human potential because human potential, we haven't reached peak human potential and everybody, anybody who tries to say the opposite um, is, is wrong. So I was just wondering how how would conscious leaders go about uh, training machines and augmenting human potential so we really get the best, continue to get the best out of out of people and and train machines in the appropriate way, i.e., machines that understand being perhaps and not just the doing. I've talked about this topic before uh, with a young man who is um, completely into AI, and my question was and frankly i know nothing about this topic but my question was how do you build the soul into the machine mm. because who we are as human individuals we're actually souls experiencing life in a three-dimensional material world and the prop the three-dimensional material world is simply a property of our senses and so we think we live in this three-dimensional material world. We actually live in a fourth-dimensional energetic world with lots of synchronicities. And once you, once you live in soul consciousness, synchronicity rains down with you. How do you program that into a machine? That's my question. So now I'll, I'll toss my angle line on it because uh, I've been working on a virtual reality project to have, help people recover from that deep dive into the dark that takes place when you overlook your soul desires and you push forward on ego needs and you are completely unaware of how context is shaping your emotional reality and your internal reality, your internal condition, if you will. And, and so one of the things that I've noticed over the years, I've sort of had a, li a life of, that's been a learning lab of how humans choose to transform and evolve in their, in their evolution as people toward consciousness, obviously, which it's, you know, to me, consciousness is a merry, I know that Richard, you describe it as awareness with purpose, and and I think that's really a, a wonderful way of you know putting it very simply. For me, it also includes a, a lot of compassion, the capacity to embrace all living things. The old words out of I think it was Einstein who said that. <laughs> anyway, point being that that I I think right now uh, what tech can do is help us uh, be better by simply providing us with some pointers to where we can navigate this complex world we live in with more awareness, with more mindfulness. So because, because a lot of people end up where they end up because they don't do self-care. They, they, they submit to the environment and, and, and give themselves over to try and meet other needs and expectations that are outside of themselves as opposed to being inside of themselves. And, and I think in order to tap into the deep, creative human potential that we have both individually and then collectively there's a need for people to be able to be aware that they actually have that potential and they won't discover it as long as they're burning themselves out in the environments of of giving over without without looking after their their caring you know caring for their growth caring for their evolution becoming more fluent i was just 
both my daughter and I are empaths, uh, which means you feel everything, see everything, and you see in people's souls, and you get a lot of information, and it's completely taken me out over the years. More and more now, people are understanding the, the value and the importance of energetic awareness and how to navigate it. And I was talking to my daughter the other day, and, and said, so really, it, it takes a high level of self-discipline, high level of self-awareness that you develop over time, and with that goes a set of skills that allows you to to put this into play and to practice it. So I think this is where not so much AI, but more at least I, I tend to lean toward VR for this because VR provides us with a contextual opportunity to pivot in, you know, in a particular place in our experience to go, okay, well, normally habitually I would respond this way, but what if I responded this way? What if I didn't react as in some cases where if you judge somebody, they judge you back or you're judged. So you judge back. What if I didn't judge back? What if I just simply had compassion for that part of the human condition and, and rose above it? So, you know, take my emotions and, and, and recognize what role they can play in the response that I might have in this moment and, and work with them in a different way. And I, I think there's a lot of value in that because if you look at the polarization that came out of the election in the United States, and, and a lot of the polarized issues that are coming out of Brexit, the post-Brexit in the UK, much of that's driven by a lack of awareness. Where does this dynamic take us? If we continue to, to, to make other people wrong and not move out of that ego-centered uh, response, where are we going to go as a species? And I think we're, com- we're at the point where we're compelled to go to a much higher level of perspective, of outlook, of functionality, collectively and, and of course individually because we have a plan we're on a planet. And a lot of the decisions I see being made are being made on the assumption that we're still a nation state and, and if we just stay at that level then all will be well. And of course it's just not true. I've just uh, finished a piece of work called the Global Consciousness Indicators. I've found the relative level of consciousness for every for 169 nations. So I can mm-hmm. rank nations all over the planet by level of consciousness, relative level of consciousness. And of course, as I rank them by level of consciousness, I can also rank them by uh, what I call world views. For that, that used to be called spiral dynamics. I'm, I'm in the process of reinventing that. Uh, the highest level of consciousness um, that we have on the planet right now, we have what I call people awareness. And the next level down is called world awareness and then national awareness. Now, in Brexit and in UK and in the USA, we were the, the nations were approaching world awareness, were beginning to live in world awareness, but there were people who had not got their survival, safety and security needs met, who had got left behind economically and educationally mm-hmm. and, a, and a large proportion for people like that and they're saying what about me what about my needs and what that's done is it means that we're the, we're dropping down the uk and the uh, usa are dropping down from world in awareness to national awareness and creating all sorts of conditions that are familiar in national awareness which is we don't like foreigners and uh, we don't mm-hmm. treat women mm-hmm. equally uh, we have a justice system that believes in capital punishment whereas you move up to world awareness that begins to change and when you get to people awareness which is like most of the scandinavian nations that's completely changed there's you know true equality or a much better level of male female equality 
the 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 justice system isn't based on punishment; it's based on rehabilitation, etc. So, we have to recognize that every nation is a crucible of consciousness for a particular worldview, and uh, and my belief is that we're not going to evolve. Hum- humanity is not going to evolve in consciousness unless we deal with each nation, and the problems of each nation have to be dealt with by the leaders and once those are dealt with then that nation can move to a higher level of consciousness and you know it's there's no there's no quick fix to human society living at the highest level of consciousness it it requires work just as it does in an organization it requires work and for now for the last seven years we've got a group of people who we pulled together who have been doing national values assessments in 27 different nations and we're all experimenting experimenting on how to move up nations from one level to the next. There are some nations which are falling back, USA and UK, but there are others which are wanting to go forward. There are others which are quite stable. Now, you know, and it doesn't depend on democracy because it depends on whether people are are happy at the worldview they're at. So in the United Arab Emirates and in Saudi Arabia, you've got a much higher level of social cohesion than you have in England and Italy and even in Iceland. Why? Mm-hmm. Because they're getting their needs met at the stage of development they're at. You know that needs to be understood. Yep. No, that sounds that sounds absolutely fascinating. And where can people go to follow that work, Richard, that you're doing? Well, um. I haven't published it yet, but I'm just putting the finishing touches to a book called Everything I Know About Values, and that's where it's mm-hmm. first going to appear. It's only three pages long, so it's not a long read. Mm. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but as you say, it does take a bit of work, but it's, it's worthwhile. It's, worthwhile work. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually a, a 90, it's a, it's a book you can read. Uh, it's, a, it's about... A third of the size of my normal books is about 90 to 100 pages. You can read it on a plane, and that's where that work is going to. But I've got a much bigger book coming out with the same sort of depth and size of A New Psychology of Human Wellbeing, which is going to address the whole issue of what I call evolutionary dynamics, which I will expose this whole idea of these global consciousness indicators. So, you know, watch this space. It's going to come up this year somewhere. But but again, I think that was the what we started out with. I think you need a bit of depth of thinking to solve the real problems rather than just throwing new shiny toys exactly. at, at solutions that do require that um, that depth. And to the to the point at the beginning as well about about culture change, it it is possible, but it does require proper cultural assessment around values and then behaviours. I think just in summary, I mean, I love the conversation and particularly what we just covered because this this is sort of allows us to recognize what we're capable of. We, we're capable of a whole lot. And I, I think the answer to the question around how nations evolve is where tech can help. Because if you, if you gamify the experience, you automatically engage people at levels that, at the energetic levels, at, at a level that they would not psychologically say yes to. So I think there's some, some uh, opportunities there that certainly a colleague and I, another colleague and I are working on. And, and perhaps there's some overlap here, ways of exploring them interconnections there but no thank you both very much great fun and uh, lots of lots of material here for listeners to take and apply to their lives any final thoughts from either one of you 
I, I'll go first. Yeah, I've got one <laughs> final thought that is is fundamental, and that is we've got to get into understanding the verticality of life and the verticality of consciousness. We've got to stop looking at the whole world like a huge flatland. Karen? I encourage everybody to be as as conscious as, as possible, to spend a bit more time being and, and noticing rather than than, than doing and, and filling our lives with, with more and more tech. Um, I think tech I see as a great opportunity, but it mustn't take us away from, from the being. So it's, uh, it's okay to stop doing. All right. Thank you both very much. Take care. Thank you. Great fun doing that with Karen and Richard. I hope you enjoyed that program. I think the last part that Richard talked about is particularly important given that we need to upgrade consciousness overall in order to be able to handle these complex decisions. The whole mindset has to shift the way we perceive the world and the kinds of assessments we make in terms of impact of decisions is pretty critical. I write for the Huffington Post, Great Workplace Cultures. I blog there monthly. I keep wanting to say blob. I blog there monthly. I also have written Decision Making for Dummies, which is a bit more of an advanced decision making book on uh, designing your decision-making environments and personal growth and failure and all those kinds of, of things. I've also contributed a chapter on the new purpose of business to Irvin Laszlo's The Intelligence of the Cosmos, coming out in October, published by Inner Traditions. In addition to that, of course, I work with companies and leaders specifically to transform their decision-making to better fit complexity and at the same time updating and upgrading leadership skills to and leadership decision-making skills specifically to handle the complex issues as well as merging that with who you are, more of who you are, and to restore some some health and, and coherence to the entire experience. So thank you for listening. Connect, please. LinkedIn and or Twitter. Twitter is E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones. Talk to you soon. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for listening. And thanks for passing this link on.